Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any of you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I don't remember exactly what led me to write Ibn Khaldun on my episode shortlist, but what I wrote down was... Ibn Khaldun, Muslim historian. That's correct, he was a historian. He focused mainly on northern Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, also a little bit of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and he was particularly focused on the history of Arabs and the Imazian, which are also known as the Berbers. Beyond that, he also wrote an original work on historiography, or the way history is studied and written, and on economics and sociology long before either of those was recognized as a field. So already we have a lot beyond just my simple description of historian. What I did not know until I got into this is that he did this work during a time of just ongoing chaos and strife. And in that context, his life included just continual political drama and intrigue, and moving from place to place as he gained favor or lost favor or was suspected of some kind of plot or, in some cases, was actually involved in some kind of plot. Like, it wasn't just all of this playing out in the background of the life of a scholar. He was personally involved in a lot of it. So that added a whole unexpected layer of intrigue to this podcast on somebody who was really groundbreaking as a scholar and uh, was one of the most important intellectual figures of his age. 
Ibn Khaldun lived shortly after the end of the Islamic Golden Age. That's a term that was coined in the 19th century to describe a period of cultural, scientific, and artistic flourishing that spanned from about the 8th century through the 13th century. We've talked about several figures from this era on the show before, including physicist Ibn al-Haytham, polymath and physician Ibn Sina, and mathematician al-Khwarizmi. One of the events that's used to mark the end of the Islamic Golden Age is the Siege of Baghdad in 1258. That's when the last remaining territory of the Abbasid Caliphate fell to Mongol invaders. Ibn Khaldun spent most of his life in northern Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, which was to the west of all of that. But that region was going through its own upheaval at roughly the same time with the fall of the Almohad Caliphate. The Almohad Caliphate had been established by an Amaziyah, also known as Berber Confederation, in the 12th century, which had controlled much of what is now Spain and northern Africa. Into the 13th century, the caliphate started losing territory in Spain to both the Reconquista, or the Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, and to other Muslim factions. In North Africa, other Muslim dynasties and sultanates had taken over various parts of what had been Almohad territory. The Almohad and Abbasid caliphates were both very large political dynasties, and their collapse led to a power vacuum and the rise of much smaller city-states, as well as the rise of a lot of tensions as their various leaders each tried to reunite the territory into one empire under their control. All of this affected Ibn Khaldun's family directly. According to his family genealogy, the House of Khaldun had been founded by an Arab ancestor from what's now Yemen who had settled in Andalusia near Seville during the Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. That took place around the 8th century. Ibn Khaldun was proud of this lineage. Arabic names trace a person's ancestry, and he gave his name in his autobiography as Abdel Rahman ibn Muhammad ibn Mahabad ibn al Hassan ibn Muhammad ibn Jabir ibn Mahabad ibn Ibrahim ibn Abdel Rahman ibn Khaldun. Although he expressed some doubts that this genealogy was maybe not totally correct, he thought logically there should be some more generations between him and that first Khaldun. After moving to Seville, the House of Khaldun had become part of the Muslim aristocracy there, holding high-ranking government and military posts in various administrations for generations, including the Almohad Caliphate after it took control of Seville in 1172. But then in 1248, Ferdinand III lay siege to Seville during the Reconquista. At that point, the Khaldun's fled to Tunis, which the Hafsids had seized from the Almohads just six years before. The Hafsids were another Amaziyah dynasty, which had been founded by a former Almohad governor. Although they'd had to flee from Seville, the Khaldun family still had a lot of wealth and power and prestige, so when they got to Tunis, they continued to be part of the elite. This was also true of Ibn Khaldun's father. Although he broke with family tradition to focus more on law and intellectual pursuits instead of on politics, Ibn Khaldun was born in Tunis on May 27th of 1332. It's a little more than 80 years after his family had fled from Seville, and the house that he's believed to have been born in is still standing today. We don't know much at all about the personal details of Ibn Khaldun's upbringing, but we do know that he got the kind of education that was typical for a son in a family with the Khaldun's social status. He studied Arabic language and literature and Islamic law, 
and he memorized the Quran. But Tunis wasn't as large or cosmopolitan as some of the other cities in North Africa, so Ibn Khaldun didn't really have access to the most prestigious teachers and mentors. That changed in 1347 when Marinid Sultan Abul Hassan Ali of Fez occupied Tunis as part of a campaign to take control of much of northern Africa. Fez is one of the oldest cities in what's now Morocco, and in the 14th century, it was a center for cultural, religious, and intellectual scholarship. It's home to the University of Al-Qarawiyan, which is the oldest institution of higher learning in the world. It was established as a mosque and teaching center by Fatima al-Fahiri in the year 859. When the Marinids occupied Tunis, they brought legal scholars and theologians from Fez with them. One of these was Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Abili, who was an influential scholar and mathematician. He lodged with the Khaldun family, and he became Ibn Khaldun's teacher. As Ibn Khaldun's education continued, he learned Maliki jurisprudence, which is one of four schools of law in Sunni Islam. But Ibn Khaldun only had access to this new set of teachers and mentors for a couple of years. The Black Death arrived in Tunis in 1348, and by 1349, both of Ibn Khaldun's parents had died of the plague. Plague also killed multiple other members of his family and some of his teachers. Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Abili survived, but he and most of the other surviving scholars all returned to Fez when the Marinids withdrew from Tunis. The Marinid occupation had become increasingly unpopular. It had never really had a very strong control over the region, especially among the semi-nomadic peoples who were living in more outlying areas, and they just couldn't maintain control in the wake of the devastation of the plague. After the Marinid withdrawal, Tunis was back under Hafsid control. Ibn Khaldun was about 17 when all of this happened, and he stayed in Tunis for a while. When he was about 18, he got his first court position, and it was as a senior staff member to one of the most powerful men in Tunis. That was the sultan's doorkeeper, who was in charge of security and controlled who did or did not get audience with the sultan. Ibn Khaldun was master of the sultan's seal, making him responsible for writing the sultan's formal signature on official documents, and he probably had some diplomatic responsibilities as well. Although this was a high-ranking position, it would not have been particularly challenging or interesting most of the time. That formal signature involved elaborate calligraphy that Ibn Khaldun had to replicate exactly over and over. So in the end, this was the first of many positions that he held. And over the course of his life, he moved from place to place. Like I said at the top of the show, there was a lot of falling out of favor and then going somewhere else and falling out of favor there as well. He ultimately worked for four different political dynasties that were often rivals or even enemies. There was the Hafsids and the Marinids, who we've already mentioned, as well as the Abdelwadids and the Nasrids. So we're going to talk more about all of the, those shifts in his life after we first pause for a sponsor break. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for 
for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like we said before the break, Over the course of his life, Ibn Khaldun moved around a lot. He worked for various political dynasties all over North Africa and at some points on the Iberian Peninsula. And he either got caught up in or actively sought out all kinds of intrigue. Some historians have interpreted this as a combination of ambition and just outright opportunism. He does definitely seem to have been ambitious, but other historians have interpreted that opportunism more as a byproduct of the politically unstable world that he was living in. So basically, he had to be at least a little bit opportunistic just to get by. Gotta play the game. Yeah, a a lot of brief articles that I read about his life that have been written in more recent years made comparisons to the Game of Thrones series. (laughs) Uh, And it was sort of like if he did not participate in this to at least some extent, he would have been one of the Starks. (laughs) 
1352, the Marinids occupied the city of Bougie, which is Bajaya, Algeria, today. Ibn Khaldun moved there not long after, possibly hoping that he would find access to the sorts of scholars and mentors that he had had when the Marinids had been in control of Tunis. He stayed until the Sultan of Morocco invited him to the Marinid capital of Fez in 1354. Once he was in Fez, he spent three years as one of the Sultan's secretaries, and this might seem like a step up since he was working directly for the Sultan rather than for the the Sultan's doorkeeper, but overall, this was a less prestigious position than what he'd had back in Tunis. He was basically a clerk. Being in Fez did let him continue his education, though. He studied at the Al-Karawiyan Mosque, and at some point during these years, he also got married. While Ibn Khaldun was living in Fez, there was a plot to oust the Marinids from Bougie and restore a previous Hafsid ruler. Ibn Khaldun was suspected of involvement in this plot, and he was imprisoned. He remained imprisoned until after the sultan was murdered in 1358, at which point he was released and given a position in the new administration. But after that, Ibn Khaldun turned around and rallied support for one of the new sultan's rivals. His motivations for this are not stated anywhere, but the new sultan was the infant son of the one who had just been murdered, and his vizier, who was acting as regent, was the murderer. So that might have had something to do with it. In 1359, Muhammad V was deposed as ruler of Granada, and he went into exile in Fez. He brought one of his primary advisors with him. That was poet and historian Ibn al-Khatib. Ibn Khaldun got to know both of these men, and in particular, he became friends and colleagues with Ibn al-Khatib. Muhammad V was restored as Sultan of Granada in 1362, and the next year, Ibn Khaldun asked for permission to leave Fez. That permission was granted, and he went to Granada, where he took a position in the Sultan's administration. He worked very closely with Ibn al-Khatib, who at that point had become Muhammad V's vizier. Although this would have been a step up for Ibn Khaldun, and he probably looked forward to working with Ibn al-Khatib, he had once again fallen under suspicion in Fez after the sultan was presumably murdered in a revolt. He was given permission to leave Fez only if he did not go to one of the neighboring city-states that was under the rule of a rival political dynasty. In 1364, Muhammad V tasked Ibn Khaldun with making a diplomatic mission to Pedro I of Castile to negotiate a peace treaty. Pedro seems to have been really impressed with Ibn Khaldun and offered to restore the Khaldun family's lands to him under the condition that he convert to Christianity. Ibn Khaldun refused this and wound up returning to North Africa, but before long, his relationship with Ibn al-Khatib started to become strained, and it was reportedly because his success in Castile led to him becoming increasingly influential with the sultan. A year later, Ibn Khaldun was once again on the move, this time to become chief minister to the Hafsid emir of Bougie. His younger brother was made vizier in the same administration. One of the things that Ibn Khaldun did in this role is to travel out to the semi-nomadic peoples in the mountainous areas around the city to try to convince them to pledge their loyalty to the sultan and to collect taxes. This required a lot of diplomacy, and he also started making observations about these people's cultures and lifestyles and drawing conclusions about how their social connections helped them survive in a demanding environment. Meanwhile. 
The intrigue was continuing. Ibn Khaldun's brother fell out of favor, and then so did Ibn Khaldun. For a few years, he moved from place to place, sometimes separated from his family if they were not given permission to join him. Ibn al-Khatib also fell out of favor in Granada, and by extension, suspicion fell on Ibn Khaldun as well. Ibn al-Khatib went back to North Africa, and then a few years later, he again fell under suspicion and was charged with heresy. He was killed in prison in 1375. Over these years, at various points, Ibn Khaldun was arrested, captured while trying to flee from places where he'd fallen under suspicion, extradited, and also held high-ranking positions in various governments, including multiple positions that involved acting as an emissary to nomadic peoples in outlying areas. By the time Ibn al-Khatib was killed, Ibn Khaldun had worked for and was out of favor with seemingly everyone. Finally, in 1375, so the same year that Ibn al-Khatib had died, he stepped away from all of this and took refuge at a remote castle, also described as a fortress, in what's now western Algeria, and he brought his family with him. Over the next few years, he wrote the first draft of the Mukadima, or the Introduction, which was the first book of his Kitab al-Ibar, or Book of Lessons. The Book of Lessons was to be a history of Arab and Amazigh peoples. Its full name translates approximately to Book of Examples and the Collection of Origins of the History of the Arabs and Berbers. He worked on that longer work during this period as well. This work was deeply informed by Islamic law and Greek philosophy as seen through a Muslim lens, as well as all of his travel and all of those positions that he'd held, the political intrigues he'd either been involved in or at least suspected of, and the time that he had spent among nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples. But it wasn't just his written history of many of the peoples of North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. He had also explored how he thought history should be researched, written, and recorded, outlining what he saw as errors in earlier chronicles and applying his ideas when he wrote the Book of Lessons. For example, he thought the work of many earlier historians and chroniclers had really fallen short. He described seven sources of historical error. They included partisanship, hubris, not examining the context and intent of earlier sources of written history, and uncritically repeating the work of previous scholars without verifying it. He pointed out multiple widely held historical facts, facts kind of in quotation marks, that just did not make sense, like armies whose numbers were impossibly big considering the population of the place they were supposedly recruited from. What? What? Doing actual math? No. Um, (laughs) He also thought that history should not be just a simple chronological documentation of people and events, but that it should explore the social mores, politics, and other factors that led events to progress in a certain way. He thought that the purpose of history was not just to document what happened, but to understand why societies rise and fall. He wanted to understand what caused things to happen a certain way in the past and what could be learned about the present based on that understanding. 
In his words, quote, history is an art of valuable doctrine, numerous in its advantages and honorable in purpose. It informs us about bygone nations in the context of their habits, the prophets in the context of their lives, and kings in the context of their states and politics. So those who seek the guidance of the past in either worldly or religious matters may have that advantage. Because of all this, sometimes Ibn Khaldun is called the father of historiography, one of at least three disciplines that he is often credited as starting. We'll talk more about that after a sponsor break. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
The Arabic version of Ibn Khaldun's Book of Lessons or Book of Examples was first printed over seven volumes. As we said earlier, book one was the Mukaddimah, which had its own introduction, followed by six chapters that was all printed as one volume. Book two was then printed over four volumes, and it primarily focused on the history of Arab peoples and dynasties, but it also incorporated histories of non-Arab peoples, such as the Persians and Greeks. Then the remaining two volumes were focused on Amazigh history, and there was a brief autobiography that was included as an appendix. This was a monumental work, and one that he revised over the remainder of his life. But the part that's most well-known and most studied is the Mukadima, Because, among other things, in addition to the portions on historiography that we talked about just before the break, he also outlined concepts that would fit in with the fields of sociology and economics centuries before either of those fields was established. He also had a chapter on pedagogy, or how people teach and learn, that we're not really even getting into today. In terms of sociology, Ibn Khaldun described what he was writing as the science of human society, or the science of social organization. His work on history, and all that time he had spent working in the extremely turbulent world of 14th century North Africa, had led him to really examine how and why societies rise and fall. Through all this, he came to believe that a political dynasty could survive for only about four generations and that all of them followed a similar cycle. This idea was underpinned by a concept called asabiyah, which is an Arabic term that really doesn't have a perfect translation into English. A lot of sources translate it as solidarity or community cohesion, but that's really only part of it. Asabiya incorporates political power and the social bonds that give a community a shared sense of purpose. Ibn Khaldun believed that society started out with a deep sense of Asabiya, and it's the people living in them struggled to survive, and that Asabiya was a huge part of how nomadic societies living in remote mountainous or desert regions were able to. But as a society grew and started to flourish, or as a nomadic society established a town or otherwise stopped migrating, it lost that sense of social cohesion. Then over time, a bureaucracy would evolve along with a hierarchy within that population. Leaders would eventually become farther and farther removed from the people they were supposed to be governing, focusing more on things like luxury and opulence than on the needs of the community. Eventually, their leadership would fail, and this society would be overthrown by an uprising on the part of the more common people or an invasion from the outside. Basically, he saw this as a continual cycle of growth and decay, and he connected that to the role that violence played in the creation and maintenance of societies. He described nomadic peoples as somewhat protected from this cycle because of the demands of their living environment. You just had to have a strong sense of social cohesion to survive while migrating through the mountains or the desert. But that really changed if a nomadic society became more sedentary. Ibn Khaldun's ideas on economics were connected to some of these same parts of the Mukaddima, as well as to chapters that discussed different crafts and trades. As societies went through that cycle of growth and decay, they also changed economically, with a greater population providing more labor, which in turn led to more profits. 
He thought taxes were necessary, but were also part of this same cycle, with newly established societies levying lower levels of taxes that people happily paid, and then demanding more and more until people ultimately refused. He also thought that prosperity and population rose hand in hand, at least to a point. As societies became bigger and wealthier, they needed increasingly complex divisions of labor. He also noted connections between supply and demand and the price of goods and how a society's growth stimulated that cycle of supply and demand. He was also opposed to monopolies, especially when those monopolies were held by the leaders of a society. He also thought that there were natural and unnatural ways for people to earn a living. Natural jobs included things like agricultural work, hunting, fishing, being a craftsperson. Unnatural jobs included rulers, soldiers, and treasure hunters. He really did not like treasure hunters at all. <laughs> he talked about that a lot. <laughs> Eventually, Ibn Khaldun left the fortress where he had drafted all of this work, and he went back to Tunis. He had written the first draft of his book without access to any kind of archive or library, and getting access to more of that research material might have been one of his reasons for returning, but he also seems to have been ill at this point. And the level of drama and intrigue had not really gone down while he was away. His brother was murdered, probably for political reasons, but the details aren't clear, and Ibn Khaldun himself also had plenty of detractors. In 1382, when he was 50, Ibn Khaldun was given permission to embark on the Hajj. That is the pilgrimage to Mecca that Muslims must make at least once in their adult lives if they are physically and financially able. Ibn Khaldun went to Alexandria, Egypt, and then on to Cairo, where he was impressed by the city's architecture and by its institutions of higher learning. Although he definitely had critics and was a controversial figure, Ibn Khaldun was also in demand as a teacher. He'd already made a name for himself with his work. He started teaching at Al-Hazar University, which had been established in the year 972 and still exists today. He also became a qadi, or judge, practicing Maliki jurisprudence. And although he wasn't under the same spotlight as he had been in his earlier political appointments, this was still a role that was influenced by politics. As a judge, he tried to be impartial and to really follow the letter of the law, regardless of whether doing so would be politically unpopular that meant that soon he had a reputation for being uncompromising and almost intentionally contrarian. Over the rest of his life, he was removed from his appointment as chief Qadi and then reinstated to it again at least five times. Drama. When Ibn Khaldun left for Egypt, it was, at least in theory, to undertake the Hajj, so his family was not with him. As he remained in Cairo, arrangements were made for his wife and five daughters to join him. But in 1384, the ship they were on sank off the coast of Alexandria, and they were killed. Now, we know almost nothing about these people in his life. The first mention of their existence is the report on their deaths. Many of Ibn Khaldun's personal possessions were also on board that ship, and that included his personal library. Yeah, there are some people who have written about his biography that interpret him as being just absolutely devastated by the loss of his family. But we know almost nothing about it from his own point of view. Like, the way he mentions it in that brief autobiography is almost offhanded, which 
doesn't necessarily signify anything because it was not typical for people to include a lot of personal details in their autobiographies at this point in time, but they are really a mystery that we know virtually nothing of. Ibn Khaldun did undertake the Hajj. He did that in 1387 and then returned to Cairo afterward. Two years later, he participated in a palace revolt, and that was apparently under duress. He was not prosecuted for that. In 1400, Timur, also known as Tamerlane, invaded Syria, having already conquered much of Persia and invaded the Indian subcontinent as he tried to rebuild the Mongol Empire. We've run our episode on Timur as a recent Saturday classic. Parts of Syria were under the control of Mamluk Egypt, and although Egypt had been allied with the Ottomans against Timur, that alliance had weakened. In quick succession, Timur had occupied Aleppo and besieged Damascus. Egypt dispatched a military force, which Timur's forces then defeated, and then afterward, Faraj, the sultan of Egypt, took a delegation to Damascus. One of its members was Ibn Khaldun, who at that point was almost 70, Some sources describe him as going along with this delegation mostly because he was really curious about Timur. Others, though, make it sound like he was deeply reluctant to go. Eventually, Faraj and his retinue withdrew and returned to Egypt, but Ibn Khaldun stayed behind to negotiate with Timur. There's one particularly dramatic account of him being lowered over the wall of the besieged city in a basket. He was really impressed with Timur and described him this way, quote, This king Timur is one of the greatest and mightiest of kings. Some attribute to him knowledge, others attribute to him heresy, because they note his preference for the members of the House of Ali. Still, others attribute to him the employment of magic and sorcery. But in all this, there is nothing. It is simply that he is highly intelligent and very perspicacious, addicted to debate and argumentation about what he knows, and also about what he does not know. This is not at all how this person is usually described in accounts from places that he conquered. No, those descriptions are more like this was a terrifying tyrant. Right, this is a ruthless man, (laughs) single of purpose, not he wanted to talk to me about philosophy, none of that. (laughs) Ibn Khaldun stayed in Damascus for 35 days and returned back to Cairo in March of 1401. Before leaving, he did manage to negotiate for civilians in Damascus to get safe passage out of the city. Based on his conversations with Timur, Ibn Khaldun seems to have thought that he would protect the city of Damascus or at least treat it pretty kindly, but after Ibn Khaldun had left, Timur's forces sacked the city, including setting fire to its great mosque. Then, Ibn Khaldun was attacked on the way home and robbed of all of his possessions. There's that ruthless part. Uh, Ibn Khaldun spent the rest of his life in Cairo. He died there on March 17, 1406. At the time of his death, he was once again Chief Qadi, having been reinstated after his most recent ouster. He was buried in a Sufi cemetery, but it's not clear whether he thought of himself as a Sufi at this point. Sufism is a mystical school of Islam, and Ibn Khaldun's earlier writing on it was contradictory. He had a lot of opinions about this kind of thing that we did not really get into in this episode. Like, he thought that prophecy could be real, but that fortune-telling was not. Like, there was just a lot of nuance that's sort of through this very Muslim (laughs) lens uh, that's beyond what we have really talked about today. 
In addition to his surviving works, which we've talked about, there are at least five other works by Ibn Khaldun that are mentioned in contemporary accounts, including work on logic and arithmetic. He only had a couple of students in his last years in Cairo, though, and he had a lot of enemies. So towards the end of his life and after his death, he was accused of all kinds of wrongdoing and immorality, and people said he was a bad scholar and that his history was garbage. Just a lot of criticism. Many works from the Islamic Golden Age were translated into Latin and became influential to scholars in Europe. But by the time Ibn Khaldun died, works in Arabic were not being translated nearly as often. So for a time, he fell into obscurity in North Africa and was unknown in Europe. The Ottomans occupied Egypt in the 15-teens, and after that point, some of his work was reprinted in compilations in the Ottoman Empire. The rediscovery of Ibn Khaldun's work in both Europe and North Africa started around the 19th century. Part of this involved France invading Algeria in 1830, and French officials were looking for local resources so they could try to learn about, understand, and ultimately control the Amazigh people. This included getting translations of the work of Ibn Khaldun, and from there, some of his ideas started making their way into the newly developing field of sociology. He doesn't seem to have been incorporated as much into the field of economics, although sometimes he is described as predicting the work of Adam Smith, and then German philosopher Friedrich Engels definitely read translations of Ibn Khaldun's work. In the 20th century, historian Arnold Toynbee described Ibn Khaldun's work on historiography as, quote, a philosophy of history which is undoubtedly the greatest work of its kind that has ever yet been created by any mind in any time or place. Ibn Khaldun has also been influential in other ways. For example, Frank Herbert's 1965 novel Dune draws heavily from Islam and from the histories and cultures of the Middle East and North Africa. There are some clear parallels between the universe of Dune and events that play out there and Ibn Khaldun's Mukaddima. And there's an in-world book that shares its name with Ibn Khaldun's history. In one interview, Herbert confirmed that he had read the Mukaddima. And in 1981, President Ronald Reagan quoted Ibn Khaldun in a speech on his administration's ideas of supply-side economics. In other words, attempting to spur economic growth by lowering taxes and lifting regulations. Reagan described Ibn Khaldun as the earliest origin of these ideas, paraphrasing from the Mukaddima by saying in part, quote, in the beginning of the dynasty, great tax revenues were gained from small assessments. At the end of the dynasty, small tax revenues were gained from large assessments. Reagan went on to say, quote, we're trying to get down to the small assessments and the great revenues. However, in Ibn Khaldun, an intellectual biography, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2018, historian Robert Irwin argues that either Reagan or his speechwriter totally misread and misinterpreted Ibn Khaldun's ideas on taxes, saying, quote, he did not think that high taxes were the main cause of reduced revenue. Rather, the high taxes were a consequence of increased expenditure and reduced income. Yeah, he... uh... He wrote about high taxes more as an indicator of the decline of a society, not as the cause of it. Not as the thing to shift around. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's Ibn Khaldun and his very uh, dramatic life full of intrigue. <laughs> 
Do you have a listener mail that may or may not include intrigue? Uh, I don't know if it includes intrigue. Intrigue might be a little stronger than uh, than it. It's this is another email about chaos cows. Uh, this one is from Mark, and Mark wrote, "Hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm a huge fan, and have been dying to email you both. Actually, I've tried many times, but I have made many foolish attempts, which I must confess." I started listening to y'all back in 2016 when I was walking for something enjoyable to listen to, and boy, did you two make me happy. I've learned so many interesting things from y'all, but here comes my confession. I now listen to you at double speed. It didn't always start this way. Actually, it was another podcast that made me start doing it. They would drone on, and I finally stopped listening to them, but it didn't stop me from speeding up all my podcasts. Everyone sounds slow when I go back to normal speed. I drive my kids and their friends a lot of places, and they always find it funny when I listen to my podcast on double speed. This makes it hard for me to hear the email address and the disclaimer that this might be an old email address. So the first three emails I tried to send may never have gotten there. It doesn't matter because I don't remember what I might have said in them. So why this one? Well, I loved when you spoke about the tour guide saying chaos cows and your initial reaction to it. I'm sure you've heard by now the reason for it, but since you didn't say as much, I thought I might try to enlighten you as you have done for me countless times. I took classics at UMass Amherst, and one of my professors who taught Greek civ and ancient Greek explained the word, this is spelled uh, using Greek letters, chi, alpha, omicron, sigma, does not mean chaos, a lack of order. It's actually closer to meaning chasm. It's pronounced chaos, and the way Greeks described something that was before the existence of Gaia and Oranos, or the earth and the sky, and it would definitely sound like cows if you'd never heard it before. Mark then goes on to talk about uh, kids and cats. There were lots of cat pictures attached to this email, which is great. Um, And then says, keep doing what y'all are doing so well. Thanks, Mark. So thanks so much, Mark. For this email, I find this information so fascinating, and it's such an intriguing idea to me, Uh, but I also feel pretty confident that this tour guide was just sounding out the word chaos the way that those letters would be pronounced in Italian so that it would rhyme with, like, ciao rather than chaos, as we would say it. Uh, But I still found this to be such an intriguing idea. Um, it's a little bit longer walk to the idea that she was using um, a Greek term uh, that was pronounced differently rather than a sounding out of a term whose letters would sound differently in Italian. Um, Also, the idea of playing a podcast at double speed and then everything sounds slow uh, resonates with me mostly from playing video games because if a video game has given me the option to sprint everywhere without any kind of penalty, I will absolutely do it. And then if I try to walk somewhere, it's too slow. It's taking forever. <laughs> yeah. I listen to audiobooks, not at double speed, but at like 1.25 or something. Uh-huh. And a regular one, I always feel like, is there a gas leak in my car? Am I having some sort of problem? No, it's just going forgot. On. Yeah, we um we occasionally will get an email from somebody who says, "You talk way too fast. I can't understand what you're saying." And often it has turned out that the person accidentally hit the playback to double speed. Um, I accidentally hit mine to 1.25 recently while I was trying to, like, listen to one of our older episodes to see if it was workable for a Saturday classic. And I had a moment where 
I wasn't sure what was going on because it sounded just different enough right. that I knew it wasn't right, but not in a way that immediately made me go, oh, I changed the playback speed by accident. Anyway, thank you so much for this note about Chaos Cows and for all of these animal pictures. We love them, of course. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.